Hello, and welcome to this interview with author of Whiteshift, professor now at the University of Buckingham, was Buckbeck, but brand new vocation, Professor Eric Kaufman. Thanks very much for coming in. Great to be here, Connor. Yeah, and we've, we've already had a, a very robust and, and enjoyable off-air conversation, so um, good, to, good to know we're all on the same page about many things. And, and it's a shame that I didn't run into you, because we were both at ARC at the, at the start of last week, but you're a, you're a busy man. And I mention ARC because there's been a recent demographics paper put out by Philip and Paul over at ARC, um, which, as we said, wasn't discussed on the main stage, which I was surprised about. Seems that some issues are maybe still too, mm. too taboo. But I know that you had a, a chat with them about that. I presume that by the time this interview's out, the, uh, that, that chat will be up and ready for everyone to see. And I, I wanted to mention that because on Monday, there was an event hosted by Miriam Cates and the Centre for Social Justice that, that featured Philip. And they're talking about the findings of his paper. And, and the, the major shocking headline that came from that was that in 2083, it could be that Britain is 54% first generation immigrant. And, and he described that as a large scale social experiment. The chair of that particular event, Fraser Nelson of The Spectator, said he was scaremongering, not because he quibbled with the numbers that Philip had come up with, but because the suggestion that this would have any adverse cultural outcomes or any kind of conflict was somehow abhorrent to him. He said it made him uncomfortable because we have a Hindu Prime Minister, a Buddhist Home Secretary, a Muslim Mayor of London, and London seems to be working very well. Um, so I suppose to tee you up then, why is the migration debate so radioactive? And why do you seem to be one of the only men brave enough to tackle it within the academy? Well, I mean, what this goes back to is essentially the race taboo, which, by the way, is something that I'm going to be addressing in my book, Taboo, which is coming out in May. Uh, the race taboo, the anti-racism taboo is at the heart of all of this. It emerges in the mid-60s in the United States. Uh, it, 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 Shelby Steele, who writes, who wrote the book White Guilt, African-American um, conservative writer, says that that taboo completely upended the nature of uh, legitimacy. And so, so for example, uh, it used to be the case that um, black Americans would have to sort of kowtow to whites and try and sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the legitimacy lay with whites and their institutions. After 1965, the taboo comes in, all of a sudden, Whites lose the legitimacy, blacks gain the cultural power, and the whites have to virtue signal their legitimacy to black people, or at least to the wider society to show they're not racist. And that leads to policies like affirmative action, for example. And another one, which is sort of an offshoot of that, is um, being very liberal on immigration is another way of signaling, kind of virtue signaling, I'm not one of those awful bad people there that's on the wrong side of the taboo. So that taboo emerges. And then it starts to spread. And this idea of um, not wanting to be seen as an anti-racist, which is sort of the social death, as John McWhorter says, it's kind of the worst thing you can be in this new moral order. Um, and that infects the entire debate over migration, right? And so what you heard uh, in that seminar is a direct ancestor of this big bang of this mid-1960s anti-racism taboo. Now, of course, it's right that there is some social sanction for openly denigrating somebody else's race or saying they're inferior or whatever. Uh, but it's also important, like as with any taboo around denigrating someone's class, their, their, the way they dress. I mean, there should be taboos, but there also should be boundaries and it should be proportional and graded, not a black and white tripwire. And so the problem is we got a black and white tripwire and then we got the expansion. All of a sudden now, 
Now, a, a report that says there could be a problem with fatherlessness in the African-American community. 1965, all of a sudden that's a problem, that's racist. All of a sudden opposing busing from black areas to white areas is racist. Opposing immigration is racist. All these sorts of things get contaminated by this radioactive taboo, which, and then of course activists on the left are weaponizing this naturally. It's like kryptonite. You can use it to shut down your opposition. Why wouldn't you? And so we're in a position where particularly the respectable kind of, even respectable conservatives want to not make sure that they are not on the wrong side of this taboo. And they, they may not even realize where their emotions are coming from. If they say, oh, I feel uncomfortable and cringy, instead of actually questioning that emotion, where it comes from, how it was socially constructed, uh, they simply just take it as red. And so I think that explains the kind of irrational response that, that you, you heard from Fraser Nelson there in that debate. I think it's particularly insidious as well, because yeah. and this is something that, that my colleague Carl and I have, have been debating with uh, one of our colleagues, Stelios, who still defines himself as a, as a classical liberal. And that is that the successes of something like critical race theory, which you very presciently wrote about in White Shift before it, it reached its <laughs> explosive apotheosis in, in 2020 with the George Floyd riot, that's only successful in, in the context of liberalism, where it can use the charges of, well, you're committed to freedom and equality, but these black people aren't actually free and equal. Um, and you're compassionate, so you're against racism. So don't you want to be against racism in our way so that we'll give you reputational damage if you don't? That only works within the liberal paradigm. Critical race theory won't, won't work within Saudi Arabia or, or, or something like that. So what vulnerabilities are being played on within the liberal paradigm that is shutting down that debate? And also, what tensions are resulting from multiculturalism, mass immigration that we're seeing manifest, but being told not to, not to notice? Yeah, some, a couple of really interesting, I, I kind of decompose those into two. I mean, one is the question about liberalism. Hmm. And of course, there is a, a literature now, a post-liberal literature, Patrick Deneen and Philip Blonde and a number of people who are questioning uh, liberalism, Adrian Vermeule over at Harvard. This is mainly from a kind of religious Catholic type point of view. Um, I'm one of these people who says, you know, procedural. So there's two kinds of liberalism. One that says you can do whatever you like to somebody, uh, you know, but, but my right to swing my arm stops at their nose, you know. And, and so as long as I'm not interfering with their liberty, I have my freedom. That is uh, what, what Isaiah Berlin would call negative liberty, procedural liberty. I think that's a very good idea. It's a great way to run a society. Um, but there's another kind of liberalism, which begins kind of with John Stuart Mill, which is all about, well, you know, it's not enough. So the early liberals like Jeremy Bentham would say, you know, if you want to live in a religious community your whole life and dedicate your life to, to God, that's one way of living. If you want to be a bohemian taking drugs, that's another way. If you want to develop your mind, that's another way. We're not going to judge these different ways of living. Uh, whereas John Stuart Mill and later liberals say, oh, no, no, you must be an autonomous individual, not adhere to tradition uh, in order to be a liberal. And that's what Berlin would call positive liberty. And, and likewise, the society, it's not enough to just let people do what they want. We have to steer society towards what we believe to be the ideal perfect society. And so it's that second type which is the problem. And, and unfortunately, it's that second type which has become more and more pronounced through the 20th century. And the ideal is kind of one of a kind of left liberal, highly egalita egalitarian by identity characteristics type of society. My, my sense is you could have a liberalism that wasn't like that. You can have a liberalism 
in the Far East, for example, in Korea and Japan, there's a very different kind of liberalism there. It's still basically rights and freedoms uh, under the law, but on the other hand, they don't push a particular ideal of the way uh, the human individual and the society should go. And and the problem, I think we, I don't think we should do what Deneen and others say, which is to kind of dismantle the the liberal structure and instead of having progressive Supreme Court justices in the U.S. replace them with conservatives who will who will um, do a different kind of judicial activism, like, again, getting away from the original text of the Constitution and push a different type of set of values in schools, and everybody has to adhere to these values, which are tend to be more religious. I think that's also a, an error. I think you can have a liberal society, you can have neutrality in schools, in the civil service, in institutions. Now, we don't have neutrality, because the progressives have taken those institutions over. But I think we can push them out and push it back to neutralities, bans on critical race theory, bans on gender theory, uh, bans on indoctrination. All of that can be done, actually, I believe. Um, but within that liberal architecture, you can have a conservative, you can have conservative attachments in civil society as part of the good life. So being attached to your nation or religion, or tradition. All of that can work, and probably has, there has to be more of that, I think, in civil society, in the public sphere, not the, the official institutions, but in the sort of sphere of civil society, if we had more of those values, then we would get our conservative counterweight to the kind of what I call modernist, left modernist values that are kind of being pushed uh, in the institutions. So we kind of have two things here. One is We've seen a corruption of liberal institutions by progressive takeover, but we've also seen the culture and the public sphere completely pushed in the direction of uh, modernism, which de- which is basically anti-tradition, uh, you know, anti-community. Uh, that that's been going for a hundred years, and now we've got this sort of um, well, essentially woke, what I would call cultural socialist values around equity and microaggressions. And that's p- become part of this package where it's really worshiping um, minority race, gender, sexual identity groups as the sort of most, the highest totems on the totem pole. So again, we've got work to do in terms of rebalancing the institutions and work to do in the culture as well. Yeah. So, so <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> wonderfully comprehensive. That's why you're a professor. Mm. <laughs> my, my, so my contention with that, so I'm I'm falling more in the sort of post-liberal camp just because, not because I wouldn't like to live in the kind of civilization that, that some of my classical liberal colleagues right. propose, um, but I think it has those unique vulnerabilities, um, mainly if you don't have a positive doctrine of the good life set forward that people can, can adhere to. The kind of multi-vocalism that you actually spoke about towards mm. the end, then I think it becomes a vacuum, which nature will abhor, and then it will be filled by people's sort of temperamental inclinations. And as we know through through height, some people are inclined towards care and fairness, and that can be turned on its head and and used to undermine undermine their civilization. So my I suppose my concern is without a sort of positive bedrock doctrine that is antithetical to wokeness, um, as certain versions of liberalism has metastasized into, doesn't have much of a defence. And so if we can use the way that liberal structures work and and function. But you fill them with some kind of counter doctrine that isn't as hands off as a kind of negative liberalism. I would hope that would be the bulwark against that. But I also understand that there's a there's a concern about rights aggression. This is something that I'm trying to balance and navigate, <laughs> but I'm not fully sure how to 
how to do it. Does that make sense? It does, but I don't think we're that far apart in the sense that, so for example, the post-liberals, if they say, well, we should have prayer in class, right? Or, well, we sh you know, everybody has to sort of engage in prayer. Or, I mean, my, my sense of my view on this is that actually I think that the substantive views of the good life and values should come in the private sphere that I, I'm just not sure I want to see these, the, a very substantive view of the good life pushed in schools and the civil service and universities. And I would rather those institutions be very strictly neutral, but work on the on you know so i'm like you probably a believer in in nation and and uh, respect for the past i mean this is something that can be developed or should be developed in private associational life and private media uh, i i think you know you you can look at a place like northern ireland where you have obviously very well developed um associational life on both the catholic and protestant side i mean if you look at orangeism which i've studied uh, you know, the Orange Order, you know, there are meetings, they can mobilize tens of thousands onto the streets, for example, in a protest. They, it, it is a simply, you know, people are more networked into uh, something which provides a version of the good life. And, and of course, you can still have debates within Orangeism, but that's coming from a, a, a sort of civil society place. And if likewise, you know, in the past, in the US, for example, you had multi-million members patriotic societies, uh, the American Legion, uh, Sons and Daughters of the American Revolution, Grand Army of the Republic, these sorts of uh, large associations would, would, they drew people into a history and a past and gave them a, a deeper sense of, of identity and history. And I think that's more of a, you know, that is the way you would sort of inculcate a set of positive values and a substantive uh, idea of the good life. I just don't think it should be done through the government and the schools, which I think, so I'm sort of, or the courts, you know, so I think that should be, uh, you know, neutral. So, so no one's having a belief shoved down their throat, but at the same time, you're fighting a kind of battle for hearts and minds um, at the level of civil society. That's sort of kind of how I would envision this. So you can still work for your values, but just not through the state apparatus. Is this the is, this is the thing. I think what yeah. we're doing here is we're, we're set on the same trajectory of travel is just <laughs> negotiating the ability to get there, you know, which, yes. which car we're picking. Uh, my, uh, my, my worry with sort of neutral institutions is the kind of conquest law of where if an institution isn't explicitly traditional, it will become left-wing modernist woke over time. And then the other one is as well, I think contained within how liberalism was germinated in the Enlightenment, it believes itself to be the kind of superior philosophy because it thinks that, okay, we've unlocked natural rights, we're, we're the great mediator right. of conflicts, we can be the parameters in which multiple cultures can coexist, disentangle their tensions and live in harmony. And I think what happens there is the belief in that progress means that it can't argue against adopting certain technologies or certain changes uh, that people like, uh, as you wrote in your, in your prior book, which I I still need to read, especially based on, <laughs> based on your summary in the, near the end of this. Um, like the Amish can, of where they can say, actually, we don't need to adopt this technology and we can, we can maintain cultural cohesion. Because John Asconis, who's an uh, academic, wrote a really interesting piece for Compact Mag. And he said that, in a way, Marx was kind of right about how technological change will actually move people from the times and places that create traditions and make them forget the kind of positive doctrines that make liberalism not go off the rails. So I suppose my, my worry is, Institutional neutrality might lead to complacency, which is how it gets taken over the long march. 
and then technologies will destroy those traditions and migration as well i suppose we can come on to that later that that create the the bedrock of of the positive doctrine that stops liberalism going mad like how do we defend against that that's that's my so my contention is that you can really i believe you can actually talk about separate spheres the the politics political architecture and the culture and the econ economics are quite separate. And I know some people think they're linked. I don't think they're actually that linked. I think what we're living through in the West is a moment that is over 100 years, probably 100 and almost 150 years old, in which novelty and difference as opposed to tradition have been the dominant theme in high culture. Hmm. And that's now filtered down into mass culture as well. Um, that movement is not there in other societies as much. So Japan and Korea, for example, just or Taiwan, just to take three East Asian examples, wouldn't, even though they're procedurally liberal and democratic in a way that I would approve of, they are not left modernist the way Western societies are. And I think they are able within the liberal framework to maintain their tradition. Now, what's the problem in the West? The problem is in the culture. And the problem is that culturally, you've had this conquest by the set of ideas, and we haven't developed an antibody. And the right, the conservative side has failed repeatedly to, especially in the second half of the 20th century. I mean, I think you would argue in the first half of the 20th century, there was quite a bit of resistance to it. And there were a lot of conservative, conservative intellectuals. I mean, Daniel Bell famously, you know, he wrote that, you know, he claims more intellectuals were on the right than on the left prior to 1940. I think he's wrong. Orwell claims the opposite. So I, I, the truth is somewhere between the two, but there were definitely more conservative intellectuals prior to World War II. Um, and so intellectual life was more balanced. There was more of a resistance. Um, then what happens is, you know, post-war and especially post-1960s, you just get this complete takeover um, by the lib liberal left plus the radical left. And, you know, we haven't developed and gotten serious about pushing back against that. So if you look at conservatism, you know, concerned entirely with Cold War and economics, post-war, um, that's all they focused on. They, yeah, they didn't like political correctness when it popped up. They may not have liked affirmative action, but, you know, as Richard Hanania writes in his book, you know, Richard Nixon abetted affirmative action with his cynical Philadelphia plan to divide the unions by forcing a kind of affirmative, affirmative action on it. I mean, the right didn't care. It just did not care about affirmative action. It didn't care about immigration. And even as we move into the 80s and 90s, well, what did the right care about in the US? Guns, abortion, and low tax. And so, for example, if you know, on abortion and, and guns, there's no question that rights punched above its weight because they have lobby groups that score congressmen, that, that lobby between election cycles, put pressure on constituencies, they're mobilized. For things like immigration and affirmative action and political correctness, there's been nothing. No organization, no pressure on politicians, nothing on the selection side. They, it has to wait for these occasional eruptions of populism. Oh, there's a populist eruption. Suddenly, Trump realizes, oh yeah, maybe immigration's a good thing to do. Uh, talks about it, gets elected. Suddenly, talking about the wall. Okay, that was a sort of freak, almost like a freak accident. But there's no kind of well organized um, effort to try and raise the salience of these issues and lobby for these issues. And so these issues have been low priorities on the right, and we're seeing that obviously in Britain. 
with the conservative party. And so the problem I would say is, you know, why do institutions drift left? Well, part of the problem is the, the right has been completely uh, inattentive. They haven't cared about these institutions drifting left. Um, they've only cared about low taxes and the Cold War and a few other things. So that's got to change. And, and I guess the question is, if that changes and you get a lot more focus on keeping politicians' feet to the fire on these issues, I suspect you will arrest this drift in the institutions. So I think the problem has been that the right has been too much focused on more kind of libertarian and Cold War things and not focused enough on culture. Mm, paralyzed by Fukuyama's end of history declaration. Yeah, it's quite frustrating. Yeah, well, well, yeah, and that kind of, the, the kind of person, you know, from William F. Buckley onward, the you know, modern conservatism, you know, Hayek, Thatcher, Reagan, it, it's all been channeled down this highly individualistic and, and materialistic track. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a major part of the problem. I mean, the whole neocon movement really was a defeat for the earlier, an earlier group of paleocons who were more interested in things like culture and immigration, and they lost. Uh, and, and, the, and then you, you, we've had this kind of 50, 60 year reign of um, this more establishment type uh, economic liberal conservatism, if you like, uh, was still obviously dominating in the, you know, in this country, in the conservative party, that's the dominant strand. And that's one of the reasons the Tory party is losing so much support is they're completely um, out of phase with their base. Uh, the, you know, the base cares about cultural security. The most conservative MPs are motivated mainly by uh, economic growth and, and low tax dynamism, et cetera. Uh, more libertarian themes. So you have no sort of alignment between these two elements. Um, so that's kind of the problem. I, I don't think it's a problem with liberalism per se, actually. I'm not sure. I mean, I think obviously you need to have a a mix of beliefs that are promoted in civil society and in the, in the media and so on. But equally, I think I think that can be done within a liberal framework. So I'm less pessimistic. I don't think there's an inevitability that once you have liberal institutions, everything just drifts towards uh, cultural, you know, modernism. I, I think I know that's Deneen's argument. I don't think it's a necessary trajectory. You also seem more temperamentally optimistic than me. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young curmudgeon, I suppose. Oh, I'm glad you raised the, the spectre of the Conservative Party and their inevitable defeat. I mean, mm. I, I don't know about you, but there was a, a very clear split up on the arc stage between the front benches like Kimmy Badenoch and Michael Gove and the back benches like Miriam Cates, Danny Kruger, the types that whose jobs are actually on the line um, have formed the new Conservatives <laughs> and said, you know, guys, maybe if they voted for reducing immigration in every manifesto pledge in the last 13 years. Maybe, maybe we should actually do that. Uh, oh. So immigration seems to be the, the great defeat that the Conservatives will face. And it's not just... And, uh, your colleague Matt Goodwin has done quite a bit of polling on this. Uh, it's not just that they're switching over to Labour, it's that loads of Conservatives just aren't bothering voting because they don't think it, it's worth anything if they're not going right. to execute on the manifesto pledge. So what that means is immigration is making manifest some kind of issue we bang on about it in the podcast every day. You took a slightly different tact in White Shift. And I will say it's quite a, quite a brave one, but not one that I really experienced. Use the word salience in, in mm. what you were saying there. And what you were saying was uh, a large influx of people of different cultures and ethnicities will increase a, a salience of one's own culture and ethnicity with the idea that it's being under threat, which gives rise to populism. Now, I'm not someone, maybe it's because I've, I've grown up in that 
post-90s world, and it's the water in which we swim. I'm not someone that has particularly like a, a white ethnic salience. It's not something that I think much about my identity other than you know, dating preferences or something like that. But I do very much have a cultural salience, and I feel that that is under threat if you're walking around certain areas of London which look unrecognisable. Um, so what's your read on what the problems with the current level of immigration are? And do you think that the debate would be, this is something that I took away from, a lot healthier if we were to be honest about that, that sense of alienation resulting from that increased salience? Yeah, I mean, essentially what I argue is that, um, first of all, the populist moment post-2014, although I think we're entering into another populist moment now, but that really was brought about, you know, essentially the issue is immigration. Um, that is far and away the best predictor of somebody uh, supporting a populist right party. Uh, whether you are rich or poor or have a job or not, none of that really matters much. Uh, when it comes to predicting who is going to support one of these parties, views on immigration, but especially ranking immigration highly amongst the issues you think are important in the country. When there's an influx, particularly an illegal influx, you will tend to get an increased salience. So it's not so much the people's attitude, whether they want less immigration or more immigration or the same changes. That's largely given by ideology, actually. It's very much a, a almost religious ideological belief, your view on immigration. Um, not entirely, but very largely. But what shifts a lot more is, okay, I want fewer immigrants in the country, but immigration's my number five issue after healthcare and the economy and, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, with the influx, it, it goes from number five to number two or number one. And a lot of people, that's what happened. You can see it very clearly in a number of different data set series, survey series. Uh, you had this rising. So by the time of the Brexit vote, it was something on the order of 40% of the country saying immigration is the number one issue. Now, partly that depends on what's going on with the economy and cost of living and health. You know, in a way, the more those are big issues, immigration gets pushed down a certain amount. Um, but in any case, this rising salience, that is people saying, I'm against, I want lower immigration, but now immigration is my number one, two issue. Uh, more, the more people move in that direction, the more populists do well at the polls. Um, and that's what we've seen across Europe. It's what we see also in the US case, uh, although the, the link is not as clear. But um, so the point is this one about salience, that the priority is rising and more people are voting for that. Now, it's also something that is, so, so I mentioned it's not about economics and, and the academic literature, I would say there's a pretty clear consensus that your own economic situation is not what determines your immigration attitudes. Uh, and, and in fact, talking about populist voting in terms of people in the Rust Belt not having a job is, is almost entirely wrongheaded. Not, not totally wrongheaded, but you know, for example, the Brexit vote, yes, poorer people were more likely to vote uh, to leave, but it was much more important, your education level. And even education level doesn't go that far. I mean, compared to a question like British culture was better in the past. I mean, your view on that question will tell us vastly more, even than your education level in terms of whether you will support Brexit, uh, UKIP, whatever. Um, so these sorts of cultural questions really tap it and the psychological questions really tap it in a much more visceral way. And that's linked to, yeah, ethnic change. So for example, if we, there've been a number of these experimental papers where they ask people to think about you know, the US becoming minority white in 2050. 
and then answer a bunch of questions. And every time they do these experiments, people become kind of more populist, more conservative, more restrictionist. They're able to actually, just with a paragraph of text, get people to... And I've done the same somewhat similarly in this country where I asked about, you can have high immigration with high skill or low immigration with low skill. Uh, which option would you like? And people kind of go 50-50. I mean, this is now several years back. I then put in the, okay, high immigration with high skill, but the white British share drops from 80% to 58% by 2060, which is roughly what it's projected to do with a higher level of immigration, which actually, incidentally, was a lot lower in that question than what we have now. But mm. the other option was you could go for low immigration, but low skills. So you're getting a lower quality immigrant, but the rate of ethnic change is slower. It's maybe only 65% rather than 58% white British. That massively shifted people away from the high immigration option towards the low immigration option by like 20, 25 points. And so whenever the kind of ethnic change is made salient, that really moves the needle on this stuff. And I think that's telling us really what's behind this. It is not really about economics. It's not about pressure on public services, because if you actually ask people, well, how big a problem is pressure on public services? You know, I did this, you about 50 out of 100, with 100 being the most, zero being the least. All you have to do is put two words, immigrants putting pressure on public services. It goes from 50 to 70. It's not about the public services. The public services, now, once you are, once you want less immigration, you see a lot of problems through that lens. Could be public services, could be sprawl, could be house prices, could be crime, could be anything. Uh, but I think fundamentally what this is about is that change, that ethnocultural change. Um, and, and I, yeah, as I say in the book, really, I mean, we do need to have a discussion about ethnocultural change and the validity of being concerned about that. Um, and, you know, so I kind of make this point, like, if we were to say, um, anyone with any kind of an accent is equally British. And I don't think many people would have a problem with that, that you, know, you should have the same rights, be treated equally, be included, you're part of the country. Um, yeah, I think that's, it's similarly, anybody of any ethnicity, like any accent. You don't have to be white to be British. And I think that's overwhelmingly the view of the people of Britain. But um, does it then follow if I were to say, well, all accents are equally British accents, right? You can see where this is going. There's a difference between saying someone who doesn't have a, have a British accent is fully equally British. That's a membership question. And then saying, well, whatever the mix of accents is in the country makes no difference to Britain. So everybody could be speaking with a different accent that's not originally from Britain, um, and Britain would be exactly Britain. There'd be no problem. I, I, you know, all accents are equally British. I think that's not true. Because, and that's a, that's a question of the collective aggregate level. But what you do is you get people who cannot, who, who sort of in a, whether they realize they're doing it or they're willfully doing it, they commit what's called the fallacy of composition. They go from the aggregate level to the individual level. A question about the aggregate distinguishing features of a country, of which accent, and a critical mass of people having a certain accent, that is one of the distinguishing, identifying features of Britain or any other country. Um, versus, oh, if someone doesn't have this accent, they're not equal. That's a membership individual level question. They're moving from that collective to the individual level question. And they play this game all the time. It's a bit like if I said, the NHS has problems. And then you said, oh, so do you, you're accusing doctors and nurses of doing a bad job. Mm. 
it's not the same thing. And so this is a well-known fallacy, but this is a game that is used to try and shut down and smear any conversation about ethnic change, pace of ethnic change as being illegitimate. Well, it's not illegitimate, actually. And it doesn't mean just if just because you want to slow things down or just because you think that a particular ethnic composition, a particular accent, critical mass of accents is an important part of British national identity does not mean you think that somebody who doesn't have the same, a certain ethnicity or accent uh, cannot be equally British. They are two separate questions. And yet constantly, it's a bit like saying immigration or immigrant. Oh, you're against immigration. You must be against this immigrant. Mm. No, uh, I, I, but that is the way it is done because everything is personalized and emotionalized instead of being analyzed the way it should be, which is we should be able to take a step back and say, what is the right way to deal with this collectively? What's the right pol policy collectively? Uh, and many liberals just are unable to do that. And I think Fraser Nelson, as you mentioned, that sort of sense of feeling a bit cringy and feeling a bit uncomfortable. And that's sort of, I think, a, a reflection of this inability to think clearly about this. Yeah, it becomes a debate ending cudgel because you're afraid of offending yeah. someone. I, I want to disentangle that, actually, because there, mm. there was a piece that I pulled up in, in, your, in your book, which was when you mentioned, not quite smokescreen, but a lot of debates around immigration are often coached because they're afraid of reputation damage if they talk about it in ethnocultural terms, in terms of impacts on public services. I think there right. are, if you're, if you're trying to take a holistic <laughs> approach to immigration, particularly as a, uh, someone who's policy-minded, it is fair to point out the kind of calculations that Migration Watch do where they say, oh, by 2046, if we keep up immigration, we're going to need 18 new Birminghams to accommodate everyone. And you're like, well, okay, that is an actual infrastructural mm. concern. But then I think the point that you made was, don't feel obliged just to focus on those things because there is an ineradicable sense of belonging that's not necessarily tied to morality. Like racism is a moral question. You shouldn't be discriminating based on someone's moral culpability based on their skin color because it's just the wrong level of analysis and it's prejudicial. Mm. But to turn around and say, well, the world on my doorstep doesn't feel like how it used to, that's a, a sort of fair thing to say. Is that is that? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, because there's a couple of things there. I mean, one is... Um, there's a difference between hostility and fear of the other and attachment to one's own. Hmm. That is a finding that has repeatedly come up in psychology literature. I mean, it's well known. Um, and there's this paper on, I think it's in-group love. I think it's called by Marilyn Brewer, which is a extremely well-cited paper that really shows how this works that actually... And, and so, for example, I'll give you uh, an example from the data uh, from the American National Election Study. If you ask white Americans, uh, they've been asked for many years, how warmly do you feel towards black Americans, Hispanic Americans on a zero to 100 thermometer? Um, and then how warmly do you feel to white people on a zero to 100 thermometer? Um, if you're a white person who feels really warm towards white people, if anything, you feel slightly warmer towards black and Hispanic people than a white person who feels really cold towards white people. So in other words, there's no correlation between being attracted to your in-group and being repelled from the out-group. So that this is not a zero-sum relationship. And, and these dispositions actually are not correlated, except if, if there was a war between, say, black and white Americans, then, then it would be correlated. So, for example, if we take or 
Yeah, if, if we take Republican and Democrat, I mean, the more strongly you are atta attached to Republicans, the more negative you feel towards Democrats. So there, there is a zero-sum relationship, but not on race. Um, and in general, there isn't this negative relationship. If I, the more attached I am to my family, doesn't mean I hate the neighbors more. And this is something that we constantly hear squashed together. It's really illiterate when it comes to the research. Um, and so my argument there is, you know, somebody who uh, is attached to a particular uh, ethnic composition, which is part of their national identity or to their community, uh, that is a very different disposition to hating being racist against an outgroup. And so it's a complete mischaracterization to say the person's being racist. Now, if there are only a few instances, so if, if I'm really attached to my group, so I discriminate in favor of them in, in hiring, then that is uh, a kind of racism because I'm engaging in racial discrimination. Now, I may be doing it to favor my own, but the net result is I'm disfavoring other people. That's, that's fair in terms of within a society. But when we're talking about migration, uh, which is people, the number of people coming from outside, it's entirely legitimate to say, you know, I like things as they are, and therefore I don't want the change, and therefore no. Um, because really you're talking about, again, membership in the nation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the rest of the world is not, and determining who gets to come in is not the same situation as I'm a bank manager deciding to hire from amongst British citizens. Uh, it's, a, it's a completely different problem. And so it's completely legitimate. Again, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, you know, ph philosophical paper on this um, by a guy called Kit Wellman, I think it was from 2007 or whatever, and again, making this case that people have rights to freedom of association, and so they have rights to control immigration. Um, and yeah, these are, again, it, it, it's, there's such, so much dishonesty in this debate, uh, squashing together in-group love and out-group hate and saying they're the same thing. That's a, a typical tactic that's used. Uh, you know, making no distinction between um, discriminating against people um, in hiring and controlling immigration and saying they're the same thing. Again, they're not. I mean, what happens within a country, very different from how a country relates to the rest of the world. It's not the same principle. People don't have rights across borders the way they have rights within societies. Um, but these are all kind of word games and rhetorical games that have played and are played very successfully. Um, and have managed to sort of limit, and particularly when you get politicians and journalists who don't know the arguments, and most of them really don't know the arguments, and they just get uncomfortable, and they just don't want to be accused of being racist, because they won't know how to handle that. And so it's easier, let's say they are getting a lot of pressure to reduce immigration, it's much easier for them to just say, well, you know, pressure on public services, and price of houses. And the problem with that, of course, is that in theory, I mean, I know it's not easy in practice, but in theory, you could always say, well, we'll build more schools, we'll build more hospitals, we'll build more houses. I mean, I know it's not easy to do, but at least in theory, you could. You could just throw up a bunch of apartment blocks. You could, mm. you know, find some council that's uh, very favorable to development and, and arguably get around that problem, um, potentially. I mean, I know it's probably not that simple, but... But the underlying question is always, what obliges us to, right? So if yeah. it's not... It's not that xenophobia and orcophilia are the same thing. Right. It's that if you if you love your own country and you would like to maintain the cultural texture of it, actually you're not obliged to bring lots of people in from the third world to give them better quality of life and just have it so that only the infrastructural concerns are the, the thing that are stopping you do that. Because suddenly if we develop the materials that would transform society overnight and we could 
make tower blocks like flat packs. Yeah. Then where's, <laughs> what, what's your opposition to bringing, you know, everyone over from South Sudan? Yeah, uh, yeah. And then, no, I, I actually really appreciate that framing because that, give, that gives you a sort of arrow in your quiver to say, no, I, I, if, if we are going to say that different cultures are distinct, I would quite like to preserve my culture and, and harbour that as a, even if you're going to call that a prejudice, I'd, li- I'd like to keep that, that in place, actually. Uh, so broadening onto the migration issue then, because I wanted to disentangle that, that racism definition, because there was something that raised my eyebrow when I was reading the book, and I wanted to see yeah. if a couple of years on you've, you've softened on it, mainly because we've seen in, in, in the, at the time of recording, this is the Thursday before Armistice Day, we're going to be seeing large-scale protests, the Million Man March by pro-Hamas supporters that are going to go down and occupy London and probably shout through the, the minute silence, and then you're going to get other people on the other side, and there's undoubtedly going to be, to be violent. Um, our, one of our colleagues, Douglas Murray, has been very forthright on saying that if you're tearing down the posters of missing Jewish children, if you're shouting Allahu Akbar in London streets after the massacre in direct response, um, you shouldn't be here, you should be somewhere else. So when I read, when I read White Shift, um, there were a couple of bits that I just thought interesting. So, so, <laughs> so you wrote, while I endorse the dismantling of left modernist taboos against criticising immigration and multiculturalism, many of the proposals regarding Muslims cross a negative liberal red line which should be restricted. Excluding particular people such as Muslim ethnic groups is racist, but trying to protect established groups is not. And you actually criticised Farage's billboard back in the Leave EU campaign. It was essentially mm. implying this is next for all the Muslim migrants coming into Germany. Um, with the violence that's set to erupt in, in my home city um, against people of... Unfortunately, I, I don't want to make this personal at all. Yes, but one of, of course. Like, one of your many backgrounds... Um, what do you think? Is it is it now fair to say we should be a bit more ideologically prejudicial in our in our immigration policy? Yeah, I think there's two things going on there. One is how to respond to chants that are genocidal in some cases. Yeah. Um, the other is whether we should have uh, cultural criteria in immigration. Right, and so. In terms of the first, I've sort of, again, because I'm a procedural liberal, my view is once you let them in, then they have the same rights as anybody else. And the problem is once you start to clamp down on free speech rights for certain groups, once you fire academics or contact their employers to get them fired because they wrote stuff about the Jews uh, or, or about you know, pro-Palestine, whatever it is, then you are opening the door to the other side doing the same to you. And the other side has a lot more power. They are much, much more numerous and powerful in all these institutions that matter, corporations and government and universities. And, and so I, and, and in any case, I just think it's the wrong move to try and limit people's rights when they're in the country. The, and, but now, so then what do you do? Um, so the first thing to say is integration policy has never really worked. Um, you will struggle to find any policy in a free society that can accelerate, for example, uh, breaking down residential segregation, increasing intermarriage, all these things. Uh, you know, yes, you, we, you can have policies that may facilitate labor market, you know, immigrants accessing the labor market or uh, participating in politics, even feeling attached to Britain. That's 
fine, but that's something quite separate from the deep ethnocultural assimilation that is really required if you're going to reduce the fractiousness of society. And the integration policies, which the politicians endlessly talk about, doesn't matter whether you're in Republican France, multicultural Canada or Britain, they don't really do anything. So the only lever you've got is immigration level. And if you're going to let in large numbers, then you're going to have more of this. And the only lever you've got, I think, that because again, the problem is if you start to clamp down on speech we don't like, then they're going to clamp down the speech they don't like, such as questioning, uh, you know, uh, whether uh, a trans woman is a woman is a woman, or whether you know, or whether saying uh, anyone can make it in Britain is racist, or all of these sorts of things. Uh, well, then these these are going to be categorized as microaggressions, and they're going to cancel people for them, or, or they're going to tear down a statue because they say it offends somebody. I mean. I just think that um, we don't want to go there. What we want to do is, I think the only thing that can be done is to try and reduce the immigration level as much as possible. Now, uh, the second question there you mentioned was um, cultural criteria. I, I'm of the view that this is a legitimate uh, thing to use. So for example, Singapore has, you know, it's about 70%, 75% ethnic Chinese and about, uh, 20 some odd percent. It's got mainly, the other groups are mainly Indian and Malay. Um, Singapore has a very low birth rate. It, it has an immigration policy which has immigrants coming in in roughly that balance, maintaining the ethnic composition of Singapore. Now, I think on liberal grounds, there is nothing wrong with that policy, even though it's probably dis ethnically discriminating against people from India in favor of people from the Chinese diaspora. Now, granted, there's large numbers from both that want to come in, but still, yeah, at the individual level, there's some discrimination going on there. But in terms of the, but I think, and again, this paper by Kit Wellman, in, in, which is in a very uh, prestigious philosophy journal, really shows quite clearly that um, the relationship between a country and the rest of the world is a bit like the relationship between a club like the Sons of Italy and British society. You know, the, the Sons of Italy says part of our mission is that we are focused on admit, you know, we want to bring in Italians or, you know, that's who, that's part of our, our organization and what we're about. And so you're allowed to discriminate, actually. Clubs are allowed to discriminate if it is core to their mission. And that, there have been court cases on this and they, they find that because you have freedom of association, which, in, which means you also have the right to choose who you don't want to associate with. Countries in relationship to the rest of the world are like associational bodies. So they do have the right to set the criteria for admittance, and that could include cultural criteria. Um, and that is not the same as a bank manager saying, I only want this group and not that group, because you're dealing with citizens of your own country who you are mandated by law to treat equally without regard to any cultural criteria. But that's not the case with respect to nations vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And again, that distinction has been completely collapsed. Um, and, and I think as Wellman writes, you know, nations, they can associate, they can join the EU, they can leave the EU, they can join another trade body, they can leave, they are like associations of individuals that can make these choices. And likewise, they can choose who to associate with and not to associate with. Now, so I think it absolutely, the, now you can approach this two ways. If you don't want to go for, uh, and I think the other thing I should say is the cultural criteria should be such that the inflow matches who's already in the country. So you wouldn't have it 100%. You know, of course, it's impossible that you would get 
only white British immigrants. That's, you know, it's impossible for a whole number of reasons, not least because the immigration flow to Australia and, and North America tends to be in the other direction. But in any case, the, the, the question would be, well, do, does Britain have, you know, they should have representation of people of Muslim, Hindu, etc. background in proportion to what's here. That would be fair because you're not then symbolically even discriminating against any group. But you can maintain that mix because you are then treating everybody equally based on their share of the existing population. So if, if a country, if Britain wanted to do a Singapore um, under liberal theory, they are not being illiberal. Um, I, I would defend that. Uh, but I actually think, you know, realistically, probably the better way to go about it is to go for uh, lower numbers because, you know, but of course, in theory, I think you could do it the Singapore way or you could do it through lower numbers. Both, I think, are legitimate ways of doing it. Now, it's different if your motivation for the, the sort of a cultural selection system is explicitly racial and hierarchical. Like the US did have this system in the 1920s. Now, of course, they excluded groups, say, outside of Europe. Um, they were excluded entirely. So it wasn't entirely, not, no, it wasn't a, 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 a proportionate quota in any case. But the motivation for the national origin scheme was eugenic and it was based on certain groups being higher and other groups being seen as lower. And so that then would make it a racist system. But if the motivation, as in the Singapore case, is simply democratic, it's about social order and peace, and this is what we've decided, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay, so I'm going to pose one yeah. argument okay. I agree with, and one yeah. argument I don't agree okay. with. Okay, okay. But they're both going to be annoying. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so on the, on the matter of the protests, I recently wrote an article for The Critic. Uh, I'll link it in the description so everyone can tear it apart right. and insult me. And one of the things that I said that is that in the sort of liberal rights-based tradition, is it not that these rights are based on reciprocity if we do have free association? I think that we might be making a suicidal mistake to extend all the rights of tolerance in a sort of Karl Popper way to the intolerant. So if these organizations are saying, actually, we support an Islamist regime that doesn't want to instantiate free speech, that would actually kill all these people if it came into power, and we're going to march down the street and declare our support for that, why should they be extended the same level of legal protections that someone who peacefully assimilates into the tradition of Britain does. And then on the other side, the one that I don't agree with, this is something liberals are going to charge you with in saying that you can make a, a liberal defense for the discriminatory, selective, Singaporean-style immigration policy. Um, at the base of classical liberalism, there's the mythology of the, of the state of nature, you know, the sort of universal standard human. And this is how you get the, the discrimination, uh, disparity equals discrimination paradigm that is applied to the liberals, where it says, actually, well, if we're all the same and we've got unequal outcomes, therefore, there must be discrimination somewhere in the pipeline, therefore, we must get equity to ensure equal outcomes, therefore, we're liberal. You know, that sort of mad thing. Um, if we assume the fundamental universality of people under liberalism, how can you discriminate between which people from where can come into the country? I'm sure that that you're trying to introduce some, well, actually, you know, evolutionary psychology and various things would mean that we're not just all this woolly universal assumption. But how do you convince the liberals of that? That's the question. Yes. I know those are both really annoying, but... Yeah, 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 yeah. So the second one was, is this universalist liberalism. I mean, obviously there are, um, and the first, well, the first one is, is, so do you, it gets to this paradox of tolerance in a way, do you tolerate the intolerance? Yep. And 
you know, and Popper talked about that. And yes, you can do it to a certain extent until it becomes really threatening. But you should do it. I mean, Popper's argument is you should tolerate the intolerant up until the point where it really is threatening. And and I think the problem again with restricting the rights of those who you know even say, oh, I support Hamas. You know, it's a bit. It's a bit like people who supported the IRA, of which there were quite a number. Um, you know, partly, my view on this is: well, first of all, I want to hear, and I want those people out so that we know who they are. Number one. Number two. Like, it's not clear to me that allowing them to speak makes the problem worse. It's a bit like the people who say the far right shouldn't be allowed to speak, or you shouldn't be allowed to say the Holocaust didn't happen, or all these sorts of things. I mean, I'm generally of the view that this should be out in the open and that can be knocked down by uh, arguments and or ridiculed or whatever. I, I mean, I would need to see pretty strong evidence that this is leading to more violence uh, in society. And I, I think very rarely is that evidence ever provided. Um, it's not clear that we're going to get less uh, Islamist violence if we suppress rather than allow this kind of speech. Now, so again, my view would tend to be I rather let them say it, and because in a way, partly once you allow these restrictions, it's a bit like uh, counter extremism. The counter extremism came in to address Islamist extremism. It's morphed pretty quickly to be mainly about clamping down on so-called far right groups, some of which were genu genuinely uh, far right violent, but many of whom were just in a way opposed to multiculturalism and immigration. These tools are going to be used against you. Similarly, if you try and sort of restrict the speech of the pro-Palestine, uh, which of course, after after all, there's there's a bunch of shading in there. There are some that are you know just all in on Hamas and River to the Sea, and then there's others that that might just not want to see more Palestinians being killed, and uh, you know, want. There's a whole bunch of shades of of opinion there, and it's very hard to kind of prize them apart. And people can always do the Martin Bailey and say, "Oh no, I like a binational mm -hmm. state." I, that's what I mean by river to the sea. And it's very hard. It's the same with Sinn Féin IRA, you know, I mean, very tricky to sort of draw these lines. And I just think in general, I'm more of a fan of, of, of free speech on these questions. Um, and as I say, you know, again, practically speaking too, I mean, the power to enforce these is mainly in the hands of progressives. And so they are mainly going to use it for their ends and not for uh, other ends. Um, in terms of the the second point around liberals, um, so you've got different types of. I mean, liberalism is a very protein thing. Mm. Uh, it's a bit like nationalism. I and mean, you've got religious nationalism, like uh, the Hindu nationalism. You've got anti-religious nationalism, French Revolution, Ataturk's Turkey, the early Zion. You know, you've got religious and anti-religious nationalism, and you've got socialist, liberalist, or liberal forms, all kinds of different forms of nationalism. And same, same with liberalism, I would argue, to a lesser extent. I mean, liberalism is a bit more substantial, but you do have nationally bounded or more cosmopolitan versions of liberalism and, and different theorists. Would do. So David Miller at Oxford is a liberal nationalist. Jeremy Waldron, uh, I don't know where he's based, maybe somewhere in the US, you know, would be an example of a uh, a cosmopolitan liberal. Um, they take different attitudes towards something like free movement across borders. Uh, Miller would say no to that. He would say, well, you know, you need, uh, in order to have a society, you have to have borders. Michael Walter would say the same thing. In order to have, you can't have a community without boundaries. So if you get rid of boundaries, you, you lose community. And can you really have liberty without a 
any kind of community, or you're just going to get an anarchy, which will very quickly lead to a reimposition of a much more authoritarian order or a bunch of warlords. Um, so I think there, there are sound reasons why even liberals might support the nation state with boundaries. And, and also the democratic uh, system, which is tied in with immigration control. Um, the social contract, the idea that I pay my taxes in, in exchange for things that the state will provide me. But also there's a deal there that, okay, I, I'm willing to pay 45% of my income or whatever it is, because I know I'm part of a society. And not just selfishly, I, I want to support my society. But of course, I'm only willing to do that if I'm part of a society that has boundaries. If anyone in the world can access this welfare state, then I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to pay that money. Uh, and so there are a whole bunch of reasons why I think the open borders thing breaks down very quickly. And, and so you can get a liberal defense, I think, of the nation state. Right. So yeah. liberals should be in, in, in support of controlling immigration because otherwise the deluge of demographic change could lead to cultural prejudices swaying the democratic consent away from liberalism and erase liberalism entirely. Well, the, the consent, the, the legitimacy of the state and of democracy would break down quite quickly. Mm. The, the legitimacy of the welfare state, people's willingness to pay taxes even for basic public services could break down and, and anarchy and disorder, loss of trust, all of that would, would emerge, which would essentially undercut the basis of liberalism. So in a way, now, of course, a liberal would say, oh, no, somehow we can get over that and, you know, whatever. I mean, they may have some... Uh, perspective as to how the system could maintain itself, although I can't see for the life of me what that would be. Um, this is the melting pot yeah. idea. I, I said this the, the other day in our, our like six-hour three-part debate on liberalism, which <laughs> it's going to infuriate every liberal out there, I'm, I'm sure. But and, and this is what I was reading in, in, in your book. It's the, the melting pot is conceived of as kind of crucible by the people who are very optimistic about it, of where Everything goes in, the impurities are stripped away, and you have this consolidated, stronger-than-before metal left. Um, what you use is the analogy of a salad bowl, of where loads of different ingredients are, are stuck in, but they all say kind of separate, even when you skew them on the fork with distinct flavors. Yeah. I use the analogy of a, of a blender, again, looking at these protests, of where the parameters of liberalism kind of hope that by putting all the ingredients in and mixing them up, you'll be able to get something healthy out of it. Sometimes it's undigestible sludge, and sometimes <laughs> the strongest ingredient leaves a bit of a bitter aftertaste. So you need to be careful about how much you, you pack in and try, and try and mix up. So I think you're right in that it's quite a few optimistic liberals that haven't worked <laughs> out how to, how to mediate those, those war against all conflicts yet, and being ideologically prejudicial and overall reducing the amount of numbers of immigrants coming in will probably soothe that tension over. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my view on this is that um, essentially you need ethnic assimilation. So there was a book written in 1964, Milton Gordon, Assimilation in American Life. It's seven steps from economic and political integration right through to language acquisition, but then intermarriage and identity change, ethnic identity change. So you're actually adopting the myths of descent and ancestry of the host community would be the final stage of that assimilation process. Not, not everybody has to do that, but you need a, enough of a critical mass of people that are uh, moving in this direction in order to, to limit the amount of ethnic diversity in society. 
So the diversity increases through immigration, reduces through that kind of deep assimilation. It doesn't re reduce just because people acquire the English language uh, or, are ha or have a job or are voting. Those integration measures are compatible with living in a separate, you know, for example, in Oldham or Burnley, you know, you can live in a separate uh, Muslim Pakistani or Bangladeshi concentration, Pakistani probably. Um, you can live in that world. You can speak English perfectly well, have a job, vote, even feel British. That, in my view, is only a partial integration. What I'm talking about is actually people changing their identities completely uh, over time. Um, well, that's more about how they see themselves. I mean, that, that might be yeah. a, a sort of weakness of the, of the pure social contract conception yeah. of liberalism, of where you belong to society as long as you pay your taxes and you vote, and we will just totally hands off about how you think about yourself and what positive doctrines you hold. We can all live together in harmony. It's it's the it's the only economically minded version of that. Whereas if people see themselves as okay, I couldn't live anywhere else than here. That's why I've chosen here. Therefore, there's a much healthier way of embedding yourself in a community and a neighbourhood. Um, but I think a lot of even people living in those very segregated um, enclaves might not want to live anywhere else. I mean, I don't know. So my <laughs> the kind of point I would make is well. Yeah, people do have the freedom to self-segregate. There's no obligation for you to live in a certain place or to... I don't think there are such obligations. That's one of the reasons I'm more of a realist. My view is that what you need to do as the society is to limit immigration, to keep a, an equilibrium between diversity increased through immigration and diversity decreases through assimilation. And therefore, if you have um, taken in a lot of immigrants and you have high diversity, you need to bring that down through turning the tap off, not off, but reducing it a lot, which then allows an immigration pause. And, and that's what happened in the US to, to a large extent with the immigration restrictions of the 1924 Act between then and 1965. And the foreign born share went from, you know, 13% down to, I think, 5% by 1970. Well, that's an example of what I mean. And then you eventually got a lot of assimilation take place. Mm. Um, that's sort of the model that, that I have in mind. And so now that's not to say everyone is forced. No one's being forced to do anything or to live anywhere or to marry anybody. But organically, these changes will occur, but they take time. So in the case of the Southern and Eastern Europeans in the US, uh, it took like three or four generations for the ethnic neighborhoods to break up, the intermarriage to occur, new identities to take root. And I don't think we're going to get there any faster. So, I mean, my view is there has to be an appreciation that no, integration isn't enough. You need that dirty word assimilation, and it's got to be at a deep ethnic level. Not everybody, but enough people. Um, and if you take that view, then what your view would be is to say, well, we actually need an immigration pause to allow that organic process, again, which can't be speeded up by government policy, really. You can't, the government can do very little. Hmm. Uh, you just, it takes time, and time is the only way it's going to work. It's a sort of much more realistic, I think, view of how these things happen. And so, and, and I think you do need to have an ethnic majority. Uh, you know, it's worth noting that uh, if you look at the world, a lot of studies have been done on this. You know, the more heavily ethnically divided societies, politics runs more on ethnic lines. These societies are not as economically developed um, because, in part, it's just hard to agree where to put the road, the power lines, the, the hospital, the school. It's a fought over by different groups who want that piece of spending. And they don't want to pay in for somebody else. 
that kind of a society doesn't work as well. Uh, and I'm thinking of places like, you know, Kenya, Guyana, Tanzania, I mean, not, not so much Tanzania, but the, these different societies which have, or Nigeria, um, it's better to have an ethnic, secure ethnic majority. And, and 70% of the world's countries have a, a majority of at least 50% of the population. And, and it's like 80% if we, t if we drop that to 40% of the population. So that is, uh, I think, something that's worth maintaining. Um, and therefore requires attention. And, and you have to pay attention to things such as assimilation and ethnic change. And so that's why these people like, uh, you know, Fraser Nelson or even Jacob Rees-Mogg who say, well, um, ethnic composition doesn't matter. No, it does matter. And, and we have to start talking about it in a much more, uh, what's the word, adult way that, and, and that this is a legitimate concern and it matters for a whole host of reasons. Uh, we're not talking about ethnic purity and, and sending a bunch of people home. And, and, you know, there's always this view that, oh, as soon as you talk about slowing down ethnic change, the next step is going to be, you know, race purity and Nuremberg laws and, and ethno state. And it's almost like, you know, it's the slippery slope fallacy. We, we would never say the same if someone said, well, we need to increase uh, VAT. You wouldn't go, oh, we're all going to be in the gulag and, and um, shopkeepers are going to be shot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's such an infantile discussion. And yet mm. when it comes to this issue, uh, people completely collapsing this, it, you know, all the complexity out of it, and just grinding all of the kind of shades of gray into a black and white is just acceptable. Uh, and not only acceptable, it's endorsed positively. So how we ever get out of this very childish cul-de-sac, uh, I don't know, but we're, we're going to have to because the problems are just going to build. Yeah, no, it's very important talking about making the conversation more adult because I find it perversely amusing that there are people such as yourself of multi-ethnic extraction that are capable of having a more nuanced conversation about ethnic preferentialism and, and evolutionary psychology, or even, as you've written in there, you, you documented the history of conversations about race in the US, Canada, particularly the UK. Um, and how Enoch Powell was ousted for the Rivers of Blood speech. When you mentioned Jacob Rees-Mogg there, something I learned while at, while at ARC talking to someone who's very hot on political history in the UK, is that Rees-Mogg's dad the following day wrote a, a condemnatory write-up in the papers about Enoch Powell. So I think that might be um, sort of family heirloom of the kind of cultural and ethnic apathetic attitudes to migration that, that Rees-Mogg's held over. Meanwhile, the great irony is friend of the show, Calvin Robinson, got in very much trouble over at GB News saying, well, here's Enoch's statements in its appropriate context, and this is what he was using the word race for at the time versus now. And being a, a man of half Jamaican heritage, he had a sort of invulnerability shield right. <laughs> uh, to a degree being able to do that. But on, on, on making the conversation more adult, um, I understand that you've, so you've now left Buckbeck University, where you were there for, what, two decades? Yes. Um, so you're over at University of Buckingham, and you've started... Uh, new heterodox social science center, and one of the courses that you're doing is on the origins of wokeness um, and what to do about it. Do you mind elaborating for what the, what the course structure might be, where people can find it, and that? Yeah, thanks, Connor. Yeah, um, so yeah, I, I simply after you know two decades, uh, and in a way, Roger Scruton has a very similar trajectory. Sort of, I think he was 22 years. I, I was 20 at Birkbeck, and then he moved to Buckingham, and then I I moved there now. But yeah, um, the, essentially, it provides a freer environment, even though, you know, still leans left as an institution, but there is just more room to be a bit dissenting. 
uh, and what I'd say is the course on woke, yeah, this is really about the origins. Uh, it's about public opinion. So who supports it? Why do they support it? Who, who opposes it? Why do they oppose it? And then I'm trying to do this the way I would any other ideology. And, and, and then I look at uh, also culture wars and how they're playing in elections. So Florida with Ron DeSantis, but perhaps what happened in Scotland with Isla Bryson or what's happening now on the uh, parental consent front, even in some Canadian provinces, that's becoming an issue. Um, and so that's another thing that I'll look at is sort of populist right, woke left interactions. And then the philosophy. Um, what are the arguments that, that wokeness is making uh, around boundaries of speech, around uh, when it's appropriate to take down a statue or, or you know, change the, uh, the name of a building? You know, so, so try to in, you know, engage with this in a sort of uh, very sort of objective way, the way we would study fascism or communism. But of course, you know, in the university, a lot of these things are just sort of presented as well, that's just being nice and it's good manners and it's courtesy and it's just respecting your fellow student. I mean, this is sort of, it's almost normalized as just the, the it's like the air you breathe or the water you're swimming in. And part of what I'm trying to do is problematize that and say, well, no, actually, this is a very specific, time and place specific ideology that we can analyze with the same tools that we would analyze fascism or any other ideology. Now, you can agree with woke or disagree. But first of all, I'm going to use, I do believe the term is defensible. So woke, I always define in a sentence as uh, the making sacred of historically disadvantaged race, gendered, sexual minority groups. That's a sentence definition from which follows, once you accept that there is this sacred totem pole, those with more oppression points are at the top, those with fewer are at the bottom, with white males at the very bottom, uh, that is then your, your system for uh, your lens, the pair of glasses that you wear when you approach any problem. And it means that if anybody says anything that might offend the gods or essentially offend a member of one of these designated sacred groups, they must be, they are a blasphemer, they've profaned the sacred, and they must be cast out through cancellation. So that's sort of how we can understand what wokeness is. And, and likewise, if you criticize somebody who advocates on the behalf of these groups, so if you criticize someone who says they're an anti-racist or they are gender affirming, then you automatically are outing yourself and cast out as a racist or a transphobe or whatever. It's a very clever sort of system, but it's a way of, this term woke, I think, has very real conceptual um, power. And now I think it can be misused. Certainly some people might, I think when people use woke to talk about uh, people who are very, you know, who want to talk about net zero or who want to talk about vaccines. I think that's a misuse uh, and a stretching of the term beyond. Now, it, it's only applicable if someone says, well, I'm opposed to, you know, I'm in favor of net zero because I'm worried about all those black and brown people in the third world. And it's about white people being mean to black and brown people. Then yes, then it falls within uh, the definition. But if it's just purely about you know, vegetation and climate and the planet and, and no, then, then I would say it's outside my definition. So I think as long as you use the term uh, in a forensic way, I think it's a very useful term. And I also think it will la last longer than mm. all these other alternatives like successor ideology, identity synthesis, identity politics. All of them are flawed in, in some way and will never stick in my view. Yeah, they're not, they're not catchy enough for the boomers to use it as a majority. Right. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's just why it's very successful. So you, the, the working definition I've used, and, and mm. I, I, I like yours because it adds the, the 
civic religion element into right. it of where you have a revelation mechanism, you have a set of tenants, and you have an inquisition. Mm. And the former two gives you the impetus to conduct the, the latter and, and right. get rid of the non-believers. Um, the, one that, the one that I've always worked on is uh, uh, a false sense of enlightenment to conspiratorial oppression against racial, religious, and sexual minorities, and the subsequent entitlement to use redistributive means to correct those disparities. And so I think we're, I think we're on the same yes, wavelength. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, was asked, I asked Doug this when he was stoked, when he was, when he was sat yeah. in the chair. Lovely bloke. Yeah. Um, how much of woke is sincerity, right? How much yeah. of them genuinely believe this stuff? How much of it is, like Rob Henderson's term, luxury belief? It's a gatekeeping mechanism for the elites, um, like, like Larry Fink trying to use ESGs to get everyone to buy from BlackRock. Uh, and how much of it is just a grift, like the grievance industrial complex saying, well, we've got the, the new thing, the new oppression, so we can keep the, the laundry cycle of donations flowing in. Like, so how much is sincere? Uh, how much is luxury belief? How much is a grift? Yeah, I mean, it's really an interesting question. I mean, Bo Weingart had a recent piece in Aporia criticizing the uh, Henderson luxury belief hypothesis. And actually, it's interesting because uh, a colleague of mine at Manhattan Institute, which I'm also affiliated with, um, Zach Goldberg, did a paper looking at the luxury belief hypothesis with data. So do whites, for example, who support defund live in relatively safe and secure uh, areas compared to whites who oppose defund. That, let's take that question, right? And what he f actually found was there isn't a, you know, there is no real relationship between the safety of your neighborhood and being pro-defund. I mean, yes, it is true that for some, for black and Hispanics living in higher crime areas, they are less pro-defund. But if you take whites, it isn't, there isn't a relationship there. And I think actually that speaks to all, I mean, equally, by the way, we can look at companies that have paid a huge price for being woke. Um, you know, attendance at Disney theme parks, I'm told, is down 30%. Uh, you, you, there are a whole number of different, you know, obviously Bud Light. Now, you can say, well, Bud Light didn't know it was going to get hammered uh, you know, in terms of its sales uh, by, by having um, a trans model as, as far of, for its ad campaign. Now, maybe, maybe they didn't know that ahead of time, but I kind of, my sense is that and companies and entities are willing, have been willing to take quite a hit for pushing these beliefs. Uh, and they aren't making a mint off them because generally in the population, woke beliefs are opposed two to one on average. Now it varies depending on the belief. So it's generally not a winner. And this is one of the reasons why now increasingly right of center parties that have the guts, like Ron DeSantis you know, in Florida, are using the woke issue, whether it be critical race theory, whether it be gender ideology, DEI, they're using that issue successfully in electoral terms. And so as a company, uh, you know, it really doesn't pay. Now, you, perhaps certain firms that have a very young and progressive urban customer base, maybe it pays. Uh, so it may pay in certain instances. But I, my general view is the reason, and certainly if you read accounts, the reason these policies came in in, in the New York Times or in other corporations is because you have young, woke staff members who raise this in meetings. The management doesn't really know how to answer back. And this is one of the things I mentioned about the kryptonite effect of the race taboo, which of course is then borrowed by taboos around sexism and around transgender. Uh, the power of that uh, shuts down debate. So all it takes is a small number of activists to chill 
discussion and get their way. Um, and it's these young staffers, these millennial and Zoomer staffers, uh, employees that are able to kind of shame and pressure their organizations into adopting these policies. Uh, it is not generally the, the managers at the top saying, hmm, what's going to advance our bottom line the most? Let's, let's go all in on woke. Now, Yasha Monk makes the point that there was a period when Twitter and other social media were taking off where social media influencers could get our company's brand or could get uh, a publication talked up more through their influence. And his argument is that that was one in incentive for some of these publications and, and companies to go woke. I'm, I'm not 100% sold on that explanation. I mean, it is not obvious why companies that, uh, for example, have a consumer base, and let's face it, old people have more money and more spending power in today's society. You would have thought that this is not the way to go as a, as a company. Is that not the subsidy effect of of the sort of hedge funds that are that formulating the pushing ESGs, though. But I, this is this yeah. is what I've always tried to work out. Because um, Larry Fink wrote that 2018 letter to Harvard Business School, saying, "Okay, there's a vacuum in leadership after the Trump election. We're caring about the environment. We're caring about inequality. We're caring about transparent governance after the 2008 crash, and it made us all look bad. So here's all the tenants that we're going to use if you want to access BlackRock investments, especially considering we're sitting on your boards and we're your lead shareholders and things like that." I couldn't figure out whether or not, still up in the air, whether or not he actually believes this stuff, or it's just a homogenizing mechanism to corner the market as, as a kind of guild system. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, okay. So I think one way of thinking about this is, you know, in sociology, there's Max Weber is one of the sort of founding fathers of sociology, and he had this metaphor of the switchman on the, on the railroad track. So uh, the locomotive is self-interest you know, looking for power and prestige and wealth. Um, sort of the luxury, maybe the luxury beliefs fits into that model that it's all self-serving. And, but the culture is the switchman. So what's happened is the culture has set these ideals, equal outcomes for and identity groups and emotional harm protection for identity groups. That's like the highest point in society or the highest value of society. Those become the prestige beliefs, but they have to be erected there through some kind of ideological process, which is not self-interested. Um, so that then sets up uh, woke beliefs as being, in some way, something companies can drive towards. Uh, now, in another period, for example, the prohibition of alcohol and temperance, that used to be a prestige belief, and it lost prestige between about eight in the US uh, from about 1890 to 1925. You could see the class uh, composition of the major temperance organizations went down over time as these beliefs fell out of fashion. Uh, and suddenly, no longer there was no longer support for restrictions on the sale of alcohol, and it was quite the opposite. But in this case, what we've seen is a, a rise in the prestige of these beliefs, but that's been driven by an ideological agenda first. Once the ideolo ideology succeeds, the, the, not the long march through the institutions, but this purpose of kind of ideological program succeeds, erects these as the highest values of society, then all of these self-interested actors herd uh, down the track towards them. So I think you still have to explain, I mean, it's one thing to talk about the reproduction of woke as being self-interested to some degree, but the um, origin and the original rise of these ideas, I don't think you can explain through self-interest. So what I would say is it's part of the explanation. I still hold to the belief that most of the explanation is true belief. 
Um, and I'd say the same thing, by the way, for other belief systems like nationalism. You know, there's a whole debate over, you know, uh, are people nationalistic just because out of self-interest and, and leaders, they're not really believing in the nation. They just believe in, you know, self-interest. And there's some truth in that. Uh, you know, there's clearly, it's clearly the case that Donald Trump, you know, he attacked Mitt Romney for being tough on immigration in 2012. And now he, and he attacked Pat Buchanan for, for his views on immigration. And then he's flipped on a dime. Now you could maybe say in the case of Trump, it's opportunistic or Boris Johnson, you know, probably in his heart of hearts, was he a Brexiteer? You know, no, not, <laughs> right. in, not in the slightest. <laughs> right. I, th I think it's fair to accuse <laughs> Boris Johnson of being opportunistic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so you get that. And I think that's more common amongst elites. Uh, but I think in terms of support bases for Trump, for Brexit, you know, it's not as convincing to me to say, oh, these, th these people just thought they'd get some, something materially out of, uh, out of, and that's the main reason they voted Brexit. I know, I don't think that's the case. I mean, it's obviously very, very tough to tease these motivations apart. Uh, you know, you can see all kinds of things like, is it that, you know, you might say, well, if someone doesn't have a lot of status, they need some quick status, so they're going to move to these woke beliefs. Well, that would suggest that lower status people are going to be the ones who are most likely to gravitate to woke, but actually we see the reverse. So that's kind of, in a way, counting against. But on the other hand, it is the case that um, within academia, the people who are not very good at the mentally quite tricky stuff like uh, formal theory or quantitative research or whatever, the, the stuff that gets you in the top journals, those are the, the, so in a way, the less able people in academia are more likely to gravitate to woke. So that does fit a self-interested explanation, whereas the people who can't do the, the hard stuff go for DEI and critical race theory and all of this business because that gets them something. So that's that, or, or they, they become a, in the DEI part of a corporation in the HR department because they're not good enough to to be making deals and selling. I mean, those. So there's some plausibility to it, but I think there's also facts that don't fit it. Yeah. So so what I'm getting from yeah. that is that for the elites, the ideological pathogen center for like patient zero is often the universities where they have these. Yeah. I forget what term the guy came up with, but. Um, like tenured radicals, yes, like yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like Angela Davis and that. They, they just they just give them positions despite being actual terrorists, right. you know. Right. And that filters from the top to infect culture from the top down, and then from the bottom up, there's certain uh, uh, cultural pressures like the Great Awakening, the the sudden trend of using mm. racist, sexist, homophobic. I mean, you did you did all numbers and that. That's very good in yeah. white shit. Of where after Occupy Wall Street, there's an exponential explosion in all of these bud shots. Um, buzzword bugshot kind of things that are, are peppered throughout media to create it to be the waters in which we all swim. So yeah, it feels very much like a like a a pincer attack. Um, in as far as your creation of this new institute, uh, University mm. of Buckingham, what approach are you taking to fight it? Because so so Chris Rufo's recent book, he's looking at a a kind of counter vanguard thing of where we we reverse the long march for the institutions and clear the institutions out. What do you think is going to be more successful, parallel institutions or reclaiming existing institutions? Yeah, really good question. I am more of the belief, you know, if we take Elon Musk's strategy versus Gavin Parler. Yes. I'm, you look at the impact Musk has had. Now, that doesn't mean Gavin Parler are unimportant, but I think you need to do both. And it's going to depend on the industry. So clearly in media, you know, look at Lotus Eaters. Uh, the barriers to entry aren't that high. It's an expanding, 
field, you can reach many people. So therefore, a more parallel institution strategy setting up alternatives is arguably a better strategy or a very profitable strategy. However, universities is very different. You know, University of Austin, and of which I'm affiliated, has just now announced their first graduate class, and this is several years after launching. Those people will graduate in 2028. Um, it takes a long time, and then it's going to take a very, you know, I hope it's not going to take too long, but to actually rise up the prestige rankings to be able to compete with the Ivies or, or even the R1 uh, research universities. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not guaranteed. So it's a much tougher process with much greater barriers to entry. And that means that the Elon Musk strategy has to be a dominant part of it. Um, and so I'm kind of with Rufo. I mean, this is the other thing, of course, there's a debate between the more liberal types. I just reviewed Yasha Munkin and um, Greg Lukianoff and Ricky Schlott's books in Law and Liberty, where I sort of contrast the approach, their approach, which is all, well, we'll use the law, we'll use persuasion, we, uh, people who run companies and trustees need to, need to have some courage, and their approach, which is, I think, based more on moral exhortation, and I don't think is ultimately uh, going to, it, it can do something, but I don't think it's going to move the needle the way Rufo and Hanania's approach, which is you need to use elected government. It's the one institution that the public can control, and you need to use that to crack into the uh, institutions effectively and regulate them to be impartial, neutral, and try and bring viewpoint diversity back in. So what, what I would say is you, I would put more emphasis upon um, government action to for example, just a couple of things that could be done. I mean, the UK Higher Education Free Speech Bill, which I was part of, the white paper came partly from our policy exchange report. I mean, that will help address cancel culture, but that involves a government body that can fine universities if they breach people's free speech rights or, or academic freedom rights. It gives people a right to sue universities. Um, no platforming. Again, all of these things, there will be best practice established. There's a 10 person body that can in real time investigate problems as they arise. That, that I think is a good approach for um, dealing with cancel culture. But then there's the problem, even if you deal with cancel culture, you've still got peer pressure and ostracism and discrimination in hiring, in refereeing papers, in promoting grants, all of these things which are happening uh, under the radar. And so I think you need to actually monitor. I mean, my view is I kind of think, I believe in this, that, that we should have something called equivalent action, DEI, where everything you're doing on race and gender has to be matched equally by action on politics and ideology. So this means if you're going to monitor race and gender comp composition, you've got to monitor ideological and political composition as well. Now, if you don't want to do that, you can take everything away. Hmm. But I think what this will do is, is essentially compel universities to start addressing the viewpoint diversity problem. Now, it could be that either that or they scrap DEI, which either of those is a good result. Yep. <laughs> so, it sounds almost like a, a, a Trump's matching the tariff program to then get the other countries to just drop their tariffs. Uh, yeah. It makes it too inconvenient and cumbersome for them to do. It doesn't achieve their unilateral goals. Therefore, they just go, all right, yeah. we'll, we'll do away with the whole thing then just because it's less less inconvenient for us. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there are whole, I mean, the there's been so much leniency and so much leeway granted to institutions by governments and by courts. It's starting to change. Like 
even the way courts will accept expert testimony from radical sociologists and critical race theorists as somehow being equal to cancer specialists. I mean, the naivety and the the trust that has been uh, extended to these politically captured bodies, I mean, that's, again, needs to change. Um, I think we need to adapt to a a lower trust environment. Uh, The way in the US, for example, the Supreme Court, the parties battle it out over Supreme Court nominees, they accept it's a politicized process. Um, The reality is we need to, unfortunately, while we're in this low trust situation in an ideological battle with one side having no shame at all in trying to capture institutions, you have to move to an overtly politicized appointments process across the whole of government, civil service. um, That could be the schools inspectorate. You have to come come in and enforce neutrality. And this is one of the reasons that I'm I believe I'm a believer in neutrality. Is I do, I think rather than saying oh we'd like to replace the uh, the woke ethos with a religious ethos, uh, I'd rather say you know no what we want to do is we want neutrality and here's how we define political indoctrination not the loose and baggy way it's defined now but uh, where you can't tell school children to vote labor but you can tell them to you know uh, endorse critical race theory you have to define all of these things like critical race theory. The idea that gender and sexuality are, 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 are separate, or gender and sex are separate, all of that has to be defined as political. And if you, if you introduce those in class, then you are violating the law and you're going to be fired. It has to get to that level and it has to be, you report to parliament every three months and we need the status report. And if you're not, if you're not successfully addressing this with hard metrics, then you're fired and it's going to be in the press. Like that approach that is simply much more overtly politicized. I think we have to be realistic. Like that, These institutions are all a battleground. The other side has simply come in and captured them. What has to occur is a reversed uh, a strategy to actually recapture those institutions. Not, not capture them for conservatism, but make them, force them to be neutral. And anybody who wants to be an activist, who thinks teaching is about essentially brainwashing children, needs to be fired. Uh, and you need to make examples of people so that they don't do it. I think that's all doable. It's eminently doable. If we had something like, I say in the, you know, in my next book, something like an NRA, like a National Rifle Association, the way they are for gun rights, and I don't necessarily agree with their position, by the way, but an organization that is dedicated to being right on top of the politicians, scoring them, making them sign up to pledges. If they don't sign up, telling their constituents, getting that in the press, essentially shaming uh, and putting pressure on the conservative politicians to carry out this agenda and make it a serious thing. And, and if you look at the, the gun lobby and the abortion lobby in the US, they've been very successful in doing that. Um, to the point of actually damaging the Republican Party, actually, and electorally. Uh, whereas this would only benefit the conservatives electorally, right? So if you could actually get uh, a very determined political movement, um, as well as a sort of policy network, civil society actors linked to politicians, putting pressure constantly, not just at election time, monitoring, shaming. You know, that is what we need if we're actually going to get anywhere on these issues. Um, and I do think we can. I think it's definitely possible to see a reversal of what's gone on in the last uh, couple of decades. It's very encouraging to hear someone else also mutually recognize that neutrality is not just a neutral value. You know, it's, it's not a de facto presumption. You actually have to right. value neutrality in order to get institutional neutrality. So 
to right. reinstantiate that, yeah, you've got to go for a period of politicization, which I think is a very, very sensible right. thing to do. It leads me on to, I suppose, my last, my last two questions that yeah. you've kicked up. Um, one of which is very germane to how you just laid out what we need to do in terms of pressuring the politicians. What it sounds like is using politicians' own risk averseness and, frankly, a lot of times cowardice right, against them. Right. I was actually going to ask, how do we maintain integrity as a cohesive movement to clear out these institutions without the same vulnerabilities that have plagued liberal-minded individuals before to be susceptible to charges of falling down on equality or not being sufficiently non-discriminatory as the critical race theorists have capitalised. And I ask that because, um, having spoken to a few Canadians now in this chair, <laughs> including Bill Chris last time, I was going to say that like, most Canadians are very polite, they're very reasonable. Um, where does your personal courage come from? Because like, as, a, as a university <laughs> professor, I mean, frankly, uh, you're quite an unassuming man, um, very intelligent, yeah. but where, where does that conviction come from that clearly other politicians just don't have? Like including politicians mm. that have actively served the military and things like that. You know, they're more worried about being accused by the other side of being not very nice than right. standing up to the kind of principles that you're capable of. So, so where does yours come from? How do you instill it in the rest of the movement? Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's funny because my beliefs have, have changed very little for many decades. I mean, right. I've not, I wasn't one of these people who went through a different phase. And now maybe that shows a certain uh, stubbornness there, which is maybe not a good thing. But I, I would say, um, yeah, I've never really uh, sort of thought any other way. And I guess, you know, I kind of stumbled into academia almost by accident. I never intended to be an academic. Um, and so maybe it's a somewhat unconventional path that landed me there. You know, I, when I came to, before I came to Britain, I, I was in, working in the, the forest sector in northern Alberta, not far from where Jordan Peterson's from, actually. And then I was in London and at the London School of Economics, and I started off in philosophy, and then I was in anthropology, and then I was in sociology, and I wound up as a political scientist. And I, I never actually thought I'd be an academic, so it's a bit of an unconventional route. Um, but yeah, I've always... Now, look, it is the case that I wasn't necessarily out with my beliefs early on. I mean, you know, I think there, there, I, I, like anybody else who's sort of conservative in the academy, know, knew what, you know, where, where, where the boundaries were and what the limits were. But I think once you get to a certain age and, you know, a certain security, then you just say, well, screw it. I mean, I don't, don't care anymore. And, you know, I, th I think that was probably what happened around maybe 2016, 17. It just came to the point where I thought, yeah, we'll just we'll just say what we think and and we'll put it in an unvarnished way um, and let the chips fall where they may. I you know it's not it wasn't even a conscious process. It was almost very sort of subconscious and you know I thought I remember David Goodhart in 2018 saying, "Oh, yes, you're you're really sort of becoming much more forthright now." And I yeah, I, I was thinking about that and saying, "Yeah, probably that's right, but it wasn't a conscious decision one day. I woke up and said, "Yeah, I got to do this." Um and the other thing is, I guess, being secure in your beliefs that I've, and I've always, you know, I've long kind of been concerned about the issues around immigration and national identity in Canada, for example, um, and never hearing proper arguments against the restrictionist position. Always uh, emotional blackmail, always ad hominem attacks. And so I've never, I, I've, I've never been convinced by the emperor's new clothes that, that, that I think the, the sort of proponents of political correctness, which, which is of course connected, right? Because the migration debate and the woke debate are connected by the fact that speech restrictions, uh, the narrowing of the uh, Upperton window of acceptable debate 
that kind of political correctness, what that does is it makes it impossible to talk about uh, questions that need to be talked about, and that allows an opening for populists. And that's that's really we we wouldn't have populism without political correctness. And now Donald Trump was astute enough to sort of explicitly talk about political correctness in his primary campaign in 2015-16, uh, which is one, by the way, next to his uh, next to the immigration issue, the best predictor of support for Trump was hostility to political correctness. So, but but even without overtly knowing it, I think a lot of, you know, so so there's a lot of these issues that are caused by the speech restrictions in political correctness. So not being able to talk about, not accurately talk about the causes of crime or not accurately talk about the, the problems that lead to homelessness or mental illness, or there's a whole bunch of downstream effects that, um, so even if you don't care about uh, free speech, and even if you don't care about statues, you know, if you care about concrete issues like crime and immigration and healthcare, uh, you have to care about the culture war. You have to care about, so this is why I tell people, oh, it's culture war, it's just a few pointy-headed individuals nattering on, well, actually, um, the reason West Coast American cities are in such a state of decay and disrepair um, with looting and with violence and homeless encampments and all of that is because of political correctness, because the, the, the other side in the culture war won. So if that's the society you want, uh, then go ahead and, and ignore the culture wars. So, so the culture wars affects even if you don't care about culture, it affects you materially. And that's why more people need to care about it. It's also why I think more politicians who, who, who do care about the culture war need to tie it to these material issues in order for people to understand that these things are inextricably linked. So inability to control borders is linked to the culture wars. You know, so you can't care about immigration and not care about the culture wars. Um, you it's, and, and it's the same for a whole series of other things, you know, um, or, or even, I mean, even economically, I mean, if to the extent that we don't have a meritocracy because of equity and diversity, I mean, no, it's not going to, it's not going to make a big difference, but then even if you just care about the economy, you've also got to think about some of these cultural debates. And I think one of the failings of politicians is the inability to make that connection between these more material, concrete issues and the more cultural, abstruse issues. Actually, these things are connected. Yeah, well, if you can't defend your civilization existing on a metaphysical level, how are you going to be able to debate the policies? What's the impetus to debate the policies to enable it to survive and thrive? You can't. You just, mm. you just paralyze in either self-defense or you can't provide a justification for the revolutionaries that want to tear it down around you. Uh, yeah. so, so I wanted to finish off, perhaps then, with political predictions, okay. because you've been very astute on this. Uh, what do you think is going to happen in the next few years? Um, looking at the nature of things at ARC, looking at the nature of things of the uh, US election, um, obviously things are bubbling over in Canada at the moment. Mm. Who's going to win? Where are we going to be, say, 2025? So, yeah. Um, well, here's, here's my analysis of, of the way things have gone since the populist moment, 2014, extending potentially through to, uh, in Italy and Spain and Portugal, beyond 2017. But... Um, you then had the COVID pandemic. And what the pandemic does is it raises the importance of first healthcare and then inflation. You then have Ukraine, Russia, right? So a lot of these economic and political issues and, and medical issues or healthcare issues rose up the agenda. Hmm. And that's relatively bad for 
and populace. The other thing, of course, is immigration grinds to a halt. So all of that is going to help more technocratic forces. And also people are more likely to want experts and technocrats in charge when you're dealing with something like a pandemic, which is you need science and you have to be able to handle it scientifically. All of that helps technocratic politics, hurts populist politics. So we saw some of the steam go out of um, populist parties, although not most of the steam. I mean, the AFD may have gone down to 10% in Germany, but it didn't go below 10%. I mean, these parties were really became fixtures. Now, Britain is somewhat of an exception with uh, Brexit party reform, etc., not doing very well here. But on the continent, they didn't really drop. They dropped a bit. Um, now we're coming out of cost of living. That cost of living, now it depends, of course, partly what happens in with Russia, Ukraine, and inflation, but that's been going down and trending downward. Um, the pandemic is in the rearview mirror. I actually think, in, and this is, these are the conditions that obtained prior to the populist moment in 2014. Rising immigration, falling concern over healthcare and the economy is exactly the conditions that would predict a populist surge. We've already started to see um, the AFD doing very well, for example. We're seeing Le Pen in position now to take the presidency in France. Um, the latest polls out of the US, now Trump is of course a very divisive figure, but the latest New York Times battleground poll showed Trump ahead of Biden. I think that's going to be very difficult to call since they're both very flawed individuals, but I think Trump will take the nomination for the Republicans. Yeah. I actually think, I mean, if you looked at those numbers, you know, 40, over 40% 40 of Hispanics backing Trump, 22% of black Americans. Now that may be inflated perhaps, but I actually think the Hispanic and Asian Trump numbers are reflecting something real, which is this general drift of those groups to the right for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I actually think that'll make a difference in the battleground states. And so I think these polls are capturing something. Um, so I actually think Trump is, now we have to see what happens with his various indictments, but the ones he's most likely to get indicted on, he's unlikely to do serious jail time on. And the ones he's least like, which are more serious, he's unlikely to get indicted on. So it's, it strikes me that he's going to come through. Um, he sort of seems to be Mr. Teflon when it comes to this stuff. Well, do you think anyone's going to accept the 2024 election? This is something that I, I can't wrap my head around. It feels like the yeah. last election that anyone accepted in America was 2012. Um, 2016, of course, you had yeah. the Russian collusion stuff. 2020, you've had the dispute over the election being free and fair, and you had that Time Magazine article that came out and said the, the shadow campaign that, mm. that saved it. So, no matter what, on both sides, people are going to think, well, there's some screwery going on here. Sure. Um, what whoever gets installed, I think there's going to be large-scale conflict. I'm not going to do Tim Pool's thing and say civil war, but um, yes. I do. I do think there's going to be contesting at the at the state legal level. There's probably going to be skirmishes uh, akin to what we saw in in 2020 with autonomous zones. What does the American Republic do to stay together? Well, it's a kind of very interesting natural experiment of the did Trump cause the Great Awakening thesis, right? So like. If Trump comes in and all of a sudden all of the great awakening indicators like no platformings and stuff shoot up, then we'll know there's mileage in that thesis. I suspect we're not going to see that response. I actually think, that, you know, you, you, you know, for example, um, Le Pen, 2002, he got 18% Jean-Marie, yeah. um, bearing in mind that, that his daughter 
is in, in the low 40s, right? So that's how, how much more support uh, the populist right has now than in 2001, I believe it was. Maybe I got that date. It's 2001 or two. A million people out on the streets, this outrage reaction, the EU and others saying they're going to isolate, you know, all these kinds of things, um, you know, and then subsequently the Front National does even better. A muted response. And I kind of think that's maybe the pattern we're going to see. So everyone was up in arms, great resistance when Trump gets elected. I think when he gets elected now, yes, they're going to freak out, but I think it's going to be a more muted type of freak out. I, I, if I were to predict, I just think that it's not going to have the same emotional punch the second time around. And I, I wouldn't. So my, my, I guess, prediction would be if Trump gets it, there will be an, you know, yes, there will be grumbling. There will be opposition. You know, people will be very up in arms, but I don't think it's going to generate, it can't generate the same collective effervescence that took place in 2016. So when people were just shocked beyond belief. So I think that would be my prediction um, if, if Trump gets it. Now, Britain, I think it will, you know, I do think Labour will, I mean, the polls, I, I tend to trust the polls. I tend to think that they're going to be accurate. I think the Tories have alienated so much of their support base by not delivering on the most important issues for voters, for the Brexit voters in particular, um, especially migration. Um, so I think the Tories are going to pay that price. Plus, they've been in office 14 years, and the laws of political science would say it's extremely difficult to win when you've been in that long. So yeah, I think they're going to lose. Is it going to be a landslide? That is the only question, is how much they're going to lose by. And also, by the way, Scotland is now turning back towards Labour, so that will help as well for the, for the Labour Party. Um, now, of course, moving in the other direction, I think in Canada, we're going to see the Conservatives winning. Um, again, and, and the hostility to woke, at least rhetorically, uh, is playing a role. And, and Polyev, the new uh, Tory leader, is campaigning against, uh, really quite overtly against the media. And I think, again, that's helping. The media in Canada is even more, you know, it's, it's very, very heavily leaning to the left. Uh, trades on very sort of cheap stereotypes of the conservatives. Oh, they're going to bring in abortion restrictions, uh, you know, racism, just completely made up fantasy stuff that's never called out. Uh, so yeah, I think that there you're seeing a different trend. Um, and But I think in general, we're going to see a, a rerun of the populist moment of post-2014 through to 2016-17. If I were to predict, I think that's where things are going, partly because migration and refugee flows, which are the main predictor of populist rise, are going up, whereas concern over uh, the economy and healthcare and so on are, are, are moving down. And so I think as you get a rising salience of immigration, that becomes people's first, second, third issue. That's what they're thinking about. Then populists do well. Yeah, I would hope this time that if they do do a rerun of the populist moment, they start listening to you on institutional reform and don't <laughs> do the complacency that I think Trump did that was his great undoing in the end, uh, like many boomers, he just thought all institutions are neutral. Turns out yes. they're run by your enemies. But, <laughs> but, um, I, but I hear, though, that this, I mean, this time around, there are many more people in place that will, I mean, just talking to people that are close to his campaign, that, that they have in, that, you know, they have people in place now in the way they didn't last time. And so they are going to arguably be able to uh, take on the administrative state, the deep state, in, in, a, in a more effective way. Although I, I still have, I mean, I'm not a fan of Trump in, in the sense he's not focused. I, I think that someone like a DeSantis would be far more effective. But um, 
you know, this is the this is who they're going to get. Well, so. I think I think I think just as a minor detour, then DeSantis's campaign, he has burned a lot of political credibility with the base. I think yeah. we I think this we, we share this in the office. If DeSantis has just been a successful governor for Florida for another few years, um, tried the 2028 campaign trail as Trump's successor, whether Trump won or lost, and had a better track record and tried a bit of a different tact, because I think the people that are running his campaign with the Internet heavy videos. Nate, Nate did not do himself any favors there, um, and the amount of people that have memed him with the platform shoes—that okay. is the kind of thing that, that kills your <laughs> campaign momentum, particularly among the base on the right. If he hadn't have alienated quite a few of the Trump voters, I think he I think he would have been all right. But I think his moment might have gone, um, which doesn't leave us with a lot of great options after Trump has no. gone as well. Yeah, I mean it'll it'll be, but I think there's still a lot to be written on this. Like for example, if DeSantis in Florida is able to, if his reforms are able to make a big difference, and he's able to communicate that, uh, and if Trump is ineffective in bringing the administrative state to heel, then I think there's an attack line there. I mean, if now we'll see what Trump does on the border. He can't do obviously he can't do any worse than Biden on the border. But the question is, to what extent will American institutional life change under? A Trump administration, or will it continue to move in the direction it's been moving? And I think that is something that, if done correctly, you know, I think DeSantis could say, "Well, he's not effective in uh, working the hill. He's not effective in policy terms in, in getting things done. Uh, nothing's changed. It's a bit like not the Tories. Nothing's changed under the Tories. I mean, they've done a few things, but you could argue." Well, they've talked the talk, they haven't walked the walk. They've actually accelerated immigration since the, since the Blair right. years. But, but even on these institutional wokeness, now they've done bits and pieces, but they've been largely ineffective and yep. they haven't cared very much. And I think that if Trump isn't able to, if he gets in and he's not able to, to move the dial on this stuff, then I think there will be a line of attack. If, on the other hand, he is able to do something about it, then it's going to be very tough. Uh, but I still think DeSantis probably has the best name recognition of the alternatives, and a lot of the other candidates are vulnerable uh, in different ways. So I, I wouldn't count him out. Okay. <laughs> I know he doesn't have the charisma, but I'm not sure I'd count him out either. All right. Well, I think we'll have to check in with your, uh, with your predictions, <laughs> hopefully, when you, when you come back in with your next book, which is, when, when's that out, by the way? So yeah, the, it's called Taboo. It's on Amazon already. It's out uh, May 2nd. Um, and yeah, look for it in all good bookstores. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, links, links in the description as, as is to the course that's coming up at University of Buckingham. Um, thanks very much for coming in, Eric. This has been a, a blast. So really appreciate yeah. that. Uh, thank you very much to our audience. Uh, pick up a copy of this as well. Whiteshift, while you're at it. Very good. Very dense, but well worth your time. <laughs> uh, until next time, goodbye.